Psalm 70 is where we pick things up in our journey through the book of Psalms together. And Psalm 70, as you can tell, is a shorter psalm. So what I want to do, since it is shorter, we can't do this certainly with some of the longer ones, but let's just read the psalm as a whole. It's just five verses and kind of hear the, the, the concept given to us in uh, one reading, and then we'll go back and make some comments as we uh, kind of take it apart together. The psalmist writing this psalm, again, we're told, is uh, David himself, and it was a psalm that was used to bring to remembrance, so to some uh, degree, David penned this psalm as the Holy Spirit directed him, and a part of it was that as David was recording this, that he wanted it to be something that could be used to bring to remembrance spiritual truths or ways in which perhaps God has worked and God will work. So as David was recording these things, he wanted this to be a record that could be used to, he says, bring to remembrance. Uh, and again, it's almost like sometimes when we look at these Psalms, they're uh, sometimes almost like a, a glance into someone's prayer journal. And for those of you who maybe do prayer journaling, you write your prayers out, or maybe you write things down in your devotional time and kind of journal those things. Uh, you know, I've done that at times through the years. And one of the things that's kind of neat about doing that is then sometimes you can go back and maybe you can read stuff from months ago or years ago when you go back and it's kind of neat to see maybe things you were praying for that now you realize, wow, the Lord actually did this or he came through here or he answered prayer or maybe just read some of the insights of things that the Lord was speaking to you about at times when you were reading through different books of the Bible and, and it may be just something that you needed to hear as a reminder or an encouragement in regards to something you're presently facing. And so perhaps in some way David penned this with this idea, hey, this would be something to bring to remembrance periodically. And he says in this Psalm here, verse one, make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. Let all those who seek you Rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Now, as you look at this psalm, you can tell from just the overall reading that a few things were going on. First of all, there were those who were bringing hassle and were trying to bring harm very clearly, we told here, in David's life. He refers to those, verse 2, who were seeking his life. Verse 2, he also refers to these particular individuals who were seeking him that they desired his hurt. David said, they desire my hurt. That is, there were people, and there, this was the case with David at different times in his life, whether it was Saul, whether it was his son Absalom and Ahithophel and those who turned against him, his own family on occasion turned against him. Different times in David's life, he had different enemies and those who turned against him personally that were trying to not only bring trouble, but more than that, they actually were trying to bring destruction and hurt 
into David's life personally. And David dealt with that from time to time. Even as a follower of the Lord, uh, he had enemies in his life and it didn't make him immune from people doing wrong and unjust things to him or hurting him. And so you can tell that's something that David is dealing with in the midst of that. Another thing you can tell is things are so difficult and hard at the present moment that David isn't just asking for God to deliver him or for God to help him or to come to his aid, but he's acknowledging that he has no resources, no power, nothing to really, uh, in a sense, bring to the table to get himself out of this jam because he references being poor and needy. And multiple times he keeps acknowledging God as his help and deliverer. And in verse one and in the end in verse five, he's saying very clearly, Lord, hurry up. Lord, I'm in a jam here. I'm in a difficulty. I'm facing something that is a hardship. There are people who have done me wrong. There are people who are doing me wrong and they are trying to hurt me. They're trying to bring harm against my life. And he says in verse one, two times, notice he says, not only am I asking you, God, deliver me out of this mess, help me. But he's saying very clearly, verse one, make haste, he says twice. The idea is he's, he's kind of prompting God saying, Lord, would you hurry up? I don't got a lot of time here. And, you know, sometimes when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, it's a hardship, but there's no, I guess you could say, criticalness in regards to the time frame, right? And so sometimes you recognize you need God to deliver you out of something that you're dealing with, or maybe you need God to come to your help in a particular situation. And that's one particular cry for God's help. There are other times when it's time sensitive, right? Have you been in those situations before where literally you realize not only do I need help, not only do I need deliverance here, God, to get out of this jam or whatever's taking place, but Lord, I don't got a lot of time here. <laughs> time is of the essence. I mean, kind of like Peter, we talked about before when, you know, Peter obeyed the Lord and he stepped out, you know, onto the water when Jesus came to him in the midst of the storm. And he said, Lord, if that's you, tell me to, you know, tell me to come to you. And he said, well, Come on, Peter, if, if, if you're willing to trust me, step out of here and, and by your faith, my power will be exercised. And Peter stepped out into the water and then what happened? He was doing good, but then he took his eyes off of the Lord. He put his eyes on the wind and the waves and the storm that was circulating around him. And when he got his, off, got his eyes off the Lord, it says that he began to sink, right? And in that moment, Peter had a problem. He needed help and he needed deliverance and it was kind of time sensitive, Right? He didn't have a whole lot of time for the Lord to intervene. It was, Lord, save me, Lord, help. And the idea was, right now, you got to hurry up. I don't have a lot of time to get out of this situation. And sometimes in our lives, like David here in his situation, we may not only be facing something where we need God to deliver us out of it, or we need God to help us personally, but it may be a situation where time is really of the essence, and we're saying, Lord, I need you to help, and I need you to help fast. Lord, you got to put something together quickly here. You got to intervene on a rescue mission rather quickly. I need you to come speedily to my assistance, and time is critical, and this is where David is at, and sometimes it's where we're at, and this is kind of the heart of David in this psalm. He mentions verse 2, let them be ashamed, he says, Lord, and confounded, who seek my life and let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Verse three says, let them be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. So David's referring to those clearly, as we said, who 
were seeking after him, and literally they desired to hurt David in some way. So, I mean, these are people who weren't just, uh, you know, mistreating David or kind of, you know, done him wrong in a careless way. or something. These were people who were intentionally trying to bring harm into his life. He says, they're actually seeking to hurt me, Lord. There are people who actually have ill intent. They want to harm me. They are seeking to do me wrong. And David was in a perilous situation where time was critical. And he says two times in verse two and three, Lord, turn them back. In other words, Lord, turn them away. Do whatever it takes to turn them the opposite direction. Let them be ashamed. Let them be turned back. And I like he says, verse two, let them be turned back and be confused. In other words, Lord, throw them into confusion. This idea they have to harm me, this agenda they have to destroy me, just Lord, confuse the enemy and turn them away from me so that they can't be successful in hurting me. Now, again, sometimes maybe that may be something for us, verse two and three, that's actually hard to relate to. Keep in mind, for David, literally, there was a time when David was, remember, running through the wilderness and there were literally people like a militia group who were on a manhunt, literally chasing David from cave to cave, literally with murderous intent, trying to kill David trying to put an end to his life and all those who had supported David because they felt like that they were revolting against the government of Saul's rulership. And so any who were assisting David were on that same sort of hit list to, to put David and his mighty men to death. So they were, these were literal things for them. And imagine how important and how sincere this expression was for them in that situation. Well, again, I think of even as we're right in the midst of a situation now where what's going on in Afghanistan, there are no doubt Christians. There are no doubt perhaps some Americans still. There are no doubt people who assisted Americans who literally could be facing situations from those who have very ill intent and terroristic mindsets who are literally trying to hurt and wound and destroy people simply because of who they are or what their identity is or what they represent. And you can perhaps sense them in the midst of that situation saying, uh, God, you need to help us. You need to deliver us because no one else is delivering us. And God, unless you send deliverance, Unless you help us, there are people that are directly and sincerely trying to seek people's hurt, to actually put people to death, to torture people, to destroy people. And imagine for them the, the reality of this psalm and perhaps praying something like this. Lord, we pray, please turn them back. Lord, if they come after us, turn them back and confuse them. Do something to foil their plot, throw them into confusion and turn them away from us. And literally, they may perhaps need God to do that in their very situation. I mean, for us, it may not be that circumstantial of an intense situation. I think we at times can relate when people are doing us wrong. But here, this kind of makes me think of that very reality. There are people who are Christians, just like you and I, that love Jesus as much as you do. Sometimes I almost wonder, maybe they love Jesus more than I do. Because we know very little of that kind of intensity of mistreatment and persecution and hardship just for being faithful to Christ in our country at this point. I'm not saying God may not allow us to go there at some point, but there are places where people know Jesus and our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in very hard and precarious situations where people literally want to hurt and destroy their lives. And to them, this is a, a reality. Now, verse four, David goes on to say, in contrast, Lord, turn my enemies away. But he says, 
let all those who seek you, those who are seeking the Lord, let them rejoice and be glad in you. That's David's prayer for them. Those who are seeking you, Lord, let them be able to experience the enjoyment and the gladness that you can bring by your spirit. To be able to just rejoice in the Lord and to be glad in the things of God. Again, I mean, imagine that being in the midst of a hard time where circumstantially everything is horrible, right? And there are, there are Christians in places where everything is literally circumstantially horrible for them. But yet they find this inner joy, this ability to be glad and to rejoice simply in the Lord himself, in the reality that eternal life is real. You know, I think this is why it's such a healthy thing for all Christians at some point in their journey to, to go on a mission trip somewhere outside of the United States of America, to go somewhere where there's genuinely poverty. You know, when, when we used to go to the you know, Dominican Republic and when we went to Honduras, other places I've been, and, and you see, and, and this isn't politically correct, but I'm gonna say it anyway, real poverty. Like real poverty. Like people literally living hand to mouth every day and they're struggling even with integrity to still try and get by. They're not just sitting on their rump saying they're poor. These people are struggling hand to mouth every day, working for a meal by meal and living in, in, in abject poverty in those situations there. And, and, and yet still somehow these people smile, they laugh. They meet in structures that are nothing like our structures and they worship the Lord and they love the Lord. And, you know, to be able to, to have that realization that there exists that reality in the world and to be able to tell people in those kind of hard places the gospel message and let them know that, hey, I may not be able to solve all of their social economic problems. You know, you could empty the coffers of the churches and, and, and still not be able to put a dent perhaps in some of the conditions of hardship, but you can do something for people in those conditions. You can tell them of the glorious gospel and that, look, though this life is hard, and it may always be hard for you if you live in this particular location or in these circumstances, beyond this grave, when you die, there is hope of a glorious future with no more sickness and no more suffering and no more pain and how they hold on to that reality that, yeah, it's hard in this country here, but, but, but to them, the joy of just knowing the Lord and what lies beyond for them is something that they can truly benefit. And so David, Lord, let those who seek you, may they be able to just rejoice and be glad in you. Those, he says, verse four, who love your salvation, they can say continually, let God be magnified. And again, notice, I love that statement. Those who love your salvation. I like that, that statement. Loving God's salvation. You know, when, when you love something, the idea is it matters very much to you, right? When you love a person, when you love something, you care a lot about it, and it matters very much. That's what it means to love something. And, and here he's saying, those who... who God's salvation matters a whole lot to them. They love God's salvation. You know, tonight, do, do, you, do you still love God's salvation? The reality that you and I are sinful, guilty people who had no way of gaining access into eternal life beyond our death, who deserved 
punishment and damnation in the lake of fire forever and ever, and who were quite honestly making a mess of our own lives, however we were choosing to do it. It was different for all of us. But we were living life with no sense of bearing and purposeless and empty on the inside. No matter what we were doing, we were still empty every day when we put our head down on our But We knew what was missing in our life. And many of us were making a mess of our life and bringing hurt and problems and wounds into our life when we weren't following the Lord. And, and then we discovered the reality that Jesus is the son of God and he loved us and he came to this earth and he sacrificed his own life humbly and he died on the cross and he took the punishment for our sins that we deserve, that he took the bullet for us. And he endured all the pain and the punishment that we rightly deserve as guilty sinners. And that then he overcame the power of death and he's alive. And that he is willing to give to us forgiveness of all of our sin and take away all of our guilt. And to give us the hope of eternal life that we can be assured that when we die or the Lord returns, we're going to be in glory with him. And that he gives to us a brand new life if anyone's in Christ Old things have passed away. All things become new. We become a new creation. And all these concepts and benefits and blessings of God's salvation should be something that that calls us to never stop appreciating it. You know, I, I don't ever want to get to a place in my life where I become so familiar with God's salvation and what he did in saving my soul and the grace of God that it loses the wonder, right? That you stop appreciating it. And where familiarity makes you start to breed contempt. I love that David says, Lord, those who love your salvation, I want his salvation to matter a whole lot to me. We should love his salvation. It is, we love it. Lord, your salvation is incredible. And look what he says. He says, let those who love your salvation, they can say continually, let God be magnified. Those who love the Lord's salvation, guess what happens? It makes them continuous, enthusiastic worshipers, David says. They're the ones who continually say, let God be magnified. You, know, you show me individuals who aren't excited, enthusiastic, continual worshipers. And one of the things I can tell you, these are people who don't love God's salvation a whole lot. Because I don't know how. You know, if someone jumped in front of you and took a bullet for you and they managed to survive, but they saved your life... There would be, right, this underlying sense of gratitude that you would love and appreciate that person for the rest of your life, right? Well, I mean, Jesus did way more than that for us. So if we truly love his salvation, it will make us enthusiastic, continual worshipers who want to continually say, let God be magnified. And we just want to keep exalting the Lord. And it's one of the things that's a great incentive to enthusiastic, consistent worship. We can often measure where our heart is at. And it's one of the things that keeps us worshipful towards the Lord. He says, verse five, but I personally, he says, am poor and needy. In other words, Lord, I, I, have, I have nothing to bring to the table here. I'm poor, I'm needy. David's saying, I'm empty handed. I, I realize, God, I lack the resources to deliver myself from my problem I'm facing. I don't have the power or what's necessary to get myself out of this difficult situation. Lord, that's why I'm asking, deliver me and help me because I'm poor and needy. I can't, I can't get myself out of this in my own resources. Make haste, he says again. Hurry up, God, please help me. You are my help and my deliverer. Again, the, the, the word of God really knows nothing of self-help concepts. But yet a lot of people want to present Christianity in that way. I mean, you go to Christian bookstores and look at Christian, you know, stuff that sold merchandise. And so much of it just seems so self-help oriented. 
you know, the five power principles to become a powerful Christian or whatever. I mean, when the reality is, is the Bible knows nothing of that, that, you know, God helps those who help themselves. That is the dumbest statement in the world. <laughs> if we could help ourselves, then what did Jesus come for? I mean, why would God send his son and let him be humiliated and spit on his beard ripped out of his face and him scourged and his flesh ripped open and people pierce him to the cross? And, you know, why would God subject his son to such things? And why would Jesus submit himself to such if we could just help ourselves or deliver ourselves or save ourselves? The reality is we are poor and needy in the, in the greatest sense, not just in our hardships when we realize it can't get us out of a, a jam or a hard situation. We're all poor and needy even the poverty of our own spirit. And God, we need you to help us. You are our help. Lord, you're our help. We can't help ourselves. And you're our deliverer. And again, David concludes, Lord, please don't delay. Lord, I need you to act and I need you to act now. Uh, and I love David's heart here as he's just pleading with the Lord. And when you find yourself perhaps in a spot where you are in a difficult place and you need you know, a, a quick deliverance and time is of the essence, well, Psalm 70 is your psalm. Lord, I need your help, but I need it fast. Lord, I, I, I'm asking, can you, can you hurry on this one? <laughs> help quick. That's what Psalm 70 should be titled. Psalm 71 is a psalm really giving insight and description of the aged man. You can tell that from the psalm. He speaks about having a time of old age and gray hair. So this is the psalm for the aged. You can quantify what that means, how much gray hair, all those things. You can determine that yourself. But he says, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Notice one of the great lessons that is learned with time uh, as someone you know, ages and matures is you realize more and more how vain and worthless it is to trust in other things rather than the Lord. Right, to trust in your own ideas, to trust in the stock market, to trust in your 401k, to trust in your retirement package, to trust in you know, the economy, to trust in the job that you have, or, to trust in other th things are so unstable constantly. Now, there's no guarantee in anything, right? You, you can't trust that you're going to have your health your whole life long. You don't know that. To trust in anything or to trust in anyone else, whether it's trusting in, you know, this person, they're always going to be faithful or consistent or reliable or even to trust in ourselves, right? The best thing to do and the longer you live, the more and more you learn the, the, the important lesson of, you know what, ultimately I need to trust in the Lord. I got to trust in the Lord, not in myself, not in anyone else ultimately and not in anything else really, but just trusting in the Lord and he says, Lord, I'm trusting in you. I'm putting my trust in you. So, Lord, let me never be put to shame. I don't want to be shamed and disgraced because I was trusting in something else. And, you know, if we trust in the Lord, ultimately we won't find ourselves put to shame because God's faithful. And he always comes through and takes care of us. He says, verse 2, deliver me in your righteousness. Lord, do what's right. Get me out of this and cause me to escape. Now we can see in this psalm, as we'll go through it as well, once again, the psalmist, and it's an anonymous psalm, we're not told if David or someone else is writing this, we're not given that indication, again, is dealing with the wicked. Those who, again, it says in this psalm two different times, he says in verse 13, who are seeking my hurt, again in verse 24, those who seek my hurt. So again, he's dealing with difficult people. There's some hardship going on where people are trying to bring 
difficult. You know, isn't it kind of just a, a fitting reminder how so often a lot of the problems we, we deal with on this earth are not just the natural things of, you know, sickness and just, you know, life's not always, you know, a bowl of cherries sometimes. But one of the biggest problems on this earth, guess what it is? People. <laughs> and we're one of them. Right. And the Bible tells us in Second Timothy three, th- the Bible says in the last days, perilous times will come. And, and, and the word perilous literally means difficult to deal with or hard to navigate. Perilous, like being, being in a perilous storm. And he says in the last days, perilous times will come. And then the Holy Spirit inspires nothing other than describing difficult people, people who are brutal and haters of God and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and, and, and disobedient to parents and disrespectful and blasphemy. And he just makes this whole list and he doesn't talk about storms and earthquakes and famines and pestilences and, and wars and rumors of wars. Jesus talked about those things as last days characterizing marks as well. But the Bible, when Paul was writing under the spirit says, look, here's another perilous problem with the last days is people. That mankind will just get more corrupt, more evil, and, and more brutal and harsh in a way that they never have before. The idea is as time waxes onward in the last days, you know, come closer to the end, people will just become more unrestrained in their sinful depravity than they ever have in, been before. They will just cast off restraint, which makes sense, right? Didn't Jesus say, as it was in the days of what? Noah so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what characterized the days of Noah? People just became incredibly wicked. Humanity just cast off restraint. They were brutal and violent and perverse and just vile in their behavior. And the Bible says that's where we're progressing towards. And and because of that, as we seek to live for the Lord, that will be where a lot of our biggest hardships come from is dealing with difficult people and wicked individuals in a world of people who don't want to follow God and, and, and don't want to have a, you know, an interest in serving or fulfilling the purposes of God. And we're like going up against them and we're rubbing against them and it becomes hard for us. And this seems to be what the psalmist is describing, just going through this process. He says, verse two, the end of it, incline your ear to me, Lord, save me. Be my strong refuge. In other words, Lord, shield me. So the refuge was, it was a shield from the storm. Lord, be my strong shield, preserve me, to which I may resort continually. You have given me, given, excuse me, the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. So he says, Lord, I need you to be my strong refuge, my shield, he says, that continues uh, to, to protect me and to preserve me. And he says, I want to be able to resort to you continually. I want to keep turning to you continually again and again. For he says, you're my rock and my fortress. The idea is that you're my foundation of the stability in my life. You're my rock and you are my fortress. Lord, the foundation to all the stability I experience in my life is you. You're my stability. That's what it's built upon. He says, verse four, deliver me, O my God. Notice, out of what? The hand of the wicked. Lord, if the wicked in this world, if wicked men get their hand on my life, 
or they get their hand involved in my life or they get a hold of me and start controlling my life because that's what the wicked always want to do. He says the wicked, they want to get their hand on me. He says, Lord, deliver me out of the hand of the wicked. Lord, don't let their hand get involved in my life. Don't let them take control of my life because they're wicked. So deliver me, he says, out of the hand, notice, out of the hand of the unrighteous and the cruel man. Lord, set me free from their grasp. For you are my hope. You're my expectation, Lord. My expectancy is, is from you. You're my only hope, Lord. You are my trust from my youth. By you, I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb and my praise shall be continually of you. So the psalmist here reflecting back again, he's an older man at this point in time in his life. And he says, Lord, you are my hope now. And the reason why I'm going to keep hoping in you above all else, he says, is because I have learned something that you have been my confidence from my youth. From my youth, you have been the one who's been consistent in my life. You've always been faithful. Every time I turn to you or turn back to you, Lord, from my youth, I've seen you again and again be faithful. And he's relying on that old faithfulness of the Lord to keep his heart encouraged and to keep him hoping in the Lord presently for his current difficulties. He says, verse six, describing this, he says, by you, I've been upheld from birth for you are he who took me out of my mother's womb. Interesting, Psalm 139, David says that, that you knit me together in my mother's womb. So the Bible says that our conception comes from the Lord, the, the, the you know, initiation of our life. The Bible tells us our formation, everything about who you are, that, that God literally was knitting you together. Interesting picture there, you know? taking some of this color and some of this thread. And, and, and we've all been uniquely knit together in our mother's womb. God knit you and, and put together your life with your physical attributes and your personality and your temperament and your aptitudes and, and everything about you, knowing what his plan and purpose was for your life. He knit you together specifically in your mother's womb. And then after doing such, he says, verse six, Lord, you're also the one who took me out of my mother's womb. In other words, Lord, you're the one that allowed me to even be born after, you, after you, I was knit together. Lord, the only reason I made it out of my mother's womb, the only reason I made it to birth, Lord, you determined the day of my birth and you determined to allow me to be physically born. You took me out of my mother's womb. You began my life, he's saying, Lord. You gave me my life by taking me out of my mother's womb in the birthing process. So the idea there is I owe my whole life to you. Since you took me out of my mother's womb, Lord, my, my life belongs to you. And, and he says, verse six, you've even upheld me from birth. So you took me out of the womb and then you sustained me and you've been upholding my life from the very moment of my birth. And what a wonderful reality to consider that, that, that concept of how many times our life could have been completely ruined or fallen apart on occasion, but it was the Lord who upheld us. And how many times he's probably upheld us that we weren't even aware that he was the one keeping us together and, and doing that from our very birth, you know, sustaining thing. I mean, how many times have you been responsible for keeping yourself breathing since your first breath? I'd say God's been upholding you since your birth. How many times have you taken responsibility to keep your heart beating from the moment of your birth when he took you out of the womb? God's upheld all that, right? And that's just the practical, physical thing. It's not all the other things. So he says, Lord, therefore, my praise 
shall continually be of you. Lord, you deserve all the praise, all the glory. Another reason, he says, God, you are worthy of my continuous praise. He says, verse seven, I've become a wonder. The idea is a source of examination where people would wonder at him. What is, what is it about you? What, what is it about you? You know, there's something about you. Again, because he was a follower of God, it caused people to wonder at him as God does us. He uses us as a, a witness. We're going to see Sunday morning that we're the fragrance of Christ, those of us who know the Lord. And there's something about us. You smell a certain way as a Christian. We're going to talk about Sunday morning. There's a fragrance of those who are followers. He says, and, and I've become a wonder to many. That is, people wonder on me. Well, well, it's something's different about you. What is it about you that you live in the way that you do? But you are my strong refuge. So he says, verse 8, let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. He says, Lord, if people are going to wonder at me and I'm going to be a source of examination to many around me who are always wondering why I am the way that I am and why I live the way that I live and why I do or don't do what I do or don't do. And people, he says, if they're going to constantly be examining me, then he says, Lord, verse 8, then let me Take advantage of that opportunity. He says, then let my mouth be filled with your praise. In other words, you're saying, Lord, if people are going to examine my life, I don't want to be bad advertising. I don't want to be a Christian who's always complaining and discontent and unhappy with this, that, and oh, my life, this, and my life. He says, because in a sense, what am I conveying to people who are wondering and examining my life? It doesn't seem like your God takes very good care of you. You must not have a very good father. You know, I mean, if my kids were running around in school and all they were ever doing was being bad advertising, that would look bad on me as a parent, right? Oh, my dad doesn't take care of me. He just, yeah, blah, blah. He doesn't love me and he doesn't, he doesn't buy me anything and I got holes in my clothes. and That'd be bad advertising, right? So we don't want to be bad advertising as Christians for the Lord. He says, let my, and interesting, where's, the, where's that advertising predominantly come from? My mouth. Let my mouth be filled with your praise, and your glory all the day that, you know, no matter what we're going through or what we're dealing with, that we can keep talking about the goodness of God. But, you know, but the Lord's good and I know God's going to come through. And, yeah, this is hard and you know, this is a difficult time, but I'm, I'm trusting the Lord and he's been faithful to me before. And I'm going to try and, you know, keep honoring him through this. And again, it doesn't mean that we have to be fake. I'm not talking about false advertising. I'm just talking about good advertising. And that's what he says here. We don't have to be fake and false, but what we want to we want to honor God, give glory to him and praise him in the midst of people wondering and examining us. He says, verse nine, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. So, Lord, you've upheld me from birth. You took me out of my mother's womb. You've been my confidence from my youth, he says, verse five and six. So now he's looking down the road as, as he's aging and life is progressing, right? And now all of a sudden he seems to be at a spot where there's kind of, you know, we talk about there's, there's more in the rear view mirror than there is in front of you in the road ahead. And, and so he says, Lord, uh, as I realize the time of old age is coming or it is upon me, he says, Lord, in the same way you've been faithful from my birth, please, Lord, I'm just asking, keep being faithful to me. Because he says, one thing I realize that comes with old age, and this is wisdom and humility, he says, verse 9, when my strength fails. You know, one of the things you continuously learn as you go from 20 to 30 and 30 to 40 and 40 to 50 and 50 to 60, right? You realize that one thing happens is not just your health fails, is just period, your strength starts to fail. Things that you used to be able to do, the endurance you had, the ability you had, right? In my head, I'm still 20 years old. 
Then I start doing something physical and I try and keep up with my son-in-laws and I realize, holy smokes, I'm not in my 20s anymore like them. I don't know how they're doing it because in my head, I'm still 20 years old. But my body's saying, no, you're not. Your strength's failing. And, and we realize as our strength fails and as we get older, how much more dependent, right? You have to be on God. Because when you're young, you go, I'll, just, I'll just push through it, man. I'll plow through it. And, and so we kind of take that attitude into everything in life. And the older you get, you start realizing more and more how dependent upon God you really need to be. Because your strength is failing, truly. Your strength is failing all the way up until the moment you die. And so all the more as we age, he says, Lord, my strength is failing. So he says, as my strength is gradually failing, Lord, please don't cast me off. I, I need your help now more than ever. We should be growing in dependency upon God the older and older we become and the more mature we are spiritually, really. We should become more dependent. He says, for my enemies speak against me and those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together. They meet together saying, God has forsaken him. He's been abandoned by God. Pursue him and take him, for there's none to deliver him. What does he do? He cries out for God's help. He says, oh God, do not be far from me. They may say you've forsaken me, but Lord, prove them wrong. Maybe they're mocking you. Maybe they're saying, oh yeah, I'm really, I can't wait to see how God comes through for you in this one. And he says, Lord, prove them wrong. Don't be far from me. Oh God, notice again, hurry up, make haste. He says, Lord, hurry up. You got to help me in the times of the essence here, Lord, make haste. Help me quickly. Let them be confounded and consumed who are my adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. Very similar to Psalm 70. But I will hope, verse 14, continually and will praise you yet more and more. I like that. Not only hoping, but he says, I'm going to keep hoping continually. I am not going to let anything Stop me from continually hoping in the Lord, you know, because that is a safe place to continually hope. Maybe you have hoped in other things or you put your hope in other people and, and maybe you, you've kind of lost hope in them or you've lost hope in that. But the reality is you don't ever have to lose hope in the Lord. You can hope in him continually because he's constant. He changes not. And he has the power to do anything at any moment because with him, nothing's impossible. So we never have to lose hope in him. We can hope in him continuously and praise him. He says, I'm going to praise you, Lord, more and more. It's almost like, I, I kind of almost like this attitude. It's almost like this defiant, you know, I'm just going to praise him even more then. Even though I may not feel like it, or even though I may feel discouraged, I'm just going to praise him even more because of the reality that I know that nothing is still impossible because he's God. So I'm just going to praise him more and more instead of becoming more despondent. He says, I'm just going to, you know, in a, in a stubborn, persistent spirit, just keep praising him more and more. In my mouth, he says, shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day. He says, I want to spread the word of that you are a good God, that you do what is right and righteous, and your salvation is something that is available to all. For I do not know their limits. I don't know how much time they have. So I want to tell them of your salvation, he says. Verse 16, I like this statement. He says, I will go in the strength of the Lord God, and I will make mention of your righteousness, Lord, of yours only. Lord, I, I, the only thing I want to talk about is, is yours. I want to talk about you and you only. There's nothing to, to kind of be celebrated on my end. He says, I don't even many times have the strength 
to take care of situations. But I love what he declares in verse 16. I will go. And notice how he's going to go. He says, I will go in the strength of the Lord. You know, there may be something right now that the Lord is directing you to do. Maybe it's a step of obedience. Maybe it's, you know, a, a path that you're supposed to pursue. Maybe there's something you're facing and, and, and you're struggling with the reality of going forward. I just don't know if I have the strength for that. I just, I, 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 don't, I don't know where, where the strength. Or the, and look, he says, I will go in the strength of the Lord. In your strength, Lord, I will go and I will trust that your strength will give me the power that I need to do what it is that I'm going forward into. And what a wonderful thing, taking that step of faith and trusting the power of the Lord to be supplied accordingly. I will go in the strength of the Lord. Perhaps that's a word from the Lord for one of you right now in your life that you can say, I will go and I'm going to go in the strength of the Lord and trust him to give me what I need as I go into this. He says, verse 17, O God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. I love that, verse 17. Not only has he been upheld from his youth, but he says, Lord, also you have taught me from my youth. I love that, you've taught me from my youth. What a wonderful thing. You know, Jesus, when he came to this earth, one of the things about him, what, is that he was a wonderful, not just healer and, and shepherd, but he was an incredible teacher, right? He was a master teacher. And Jesus was continuously teaching and instructing and guiding. And, and one of the things about any good father, what's one of the attributes of a good father? Not just being a provider and a protector, and, but, but what? Teaching. Teaching their children. Because knowledge and teaching and understanding is empowerment, right? And so a a good father wants to teach their children because they realize, hey, I want you to be able to be as equipped as possible to make good decisions, well-informed decisions. So I want to teach you. I want to train you. Well, look, God's a good father. And he says here, one of the things I appreciate, Lord, is that you have been teaching me from my youth. And for many of us, let's just be very candid, even before you were a Christian, God has been teaching you since your youth. It was through hard consequences. Right? <laughs> he was teaching some of us some unique ways. But he was teaching us lessons then too. He, and he's been educating us and training us and raising us. And how, how much more now when we have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth within us, and we have the word of God available to us, and that he teaches us and, and instructs us, and that that is one of the ministries of God in our life to teach us, to give us understanding and to help us to grow in that way. What a wonderful thing. You know, I, again, I just want to encourage you again, don't ever buy into this concept. Oh, because somebody's not teaching me or pouring into my life. Woe is me and this and that and so on and so Look, God can teach you. God, by his spirit, can teach you. By his word, he can teach you. There's tremendous learning that can come directly from God. Does God use pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry does god use counselors and other people to speak into our life to teach us as well parents and and of course but those are just some of the methods that god uses but ultimately god can teach us a lot of things and how wonderful to be able to learn directly from him the lessons he wants to give to us david says verse 18 lord you've been a great teacher to me from my youth and it's almost as if he says lord i want to be like you You've been teaching me from my youth. You've helped me so much. So he says, verse 13, 
18. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, and again, that, that's, that means you've gained some life experience. I'm old and I'm gray-headed now. He says, oh God, do not forsake me. Be with me, Lord. Notice that word, verse 18, until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to everyone who is to come. That is the up and coming generation. Now, I love this. Notice that the Bible's you know, viewpoint on aging is much different than the American culture. The American culture's concept is as you progress towards gray hair, getting older, you should seek to get your life as easy as possible. Slow down, relax, retire, rest. You did your part. It's the young people's problem now, right? That's, that's kind of the American way. I'm older. I should do less now. The Bible actually says, actually, you're older. You have wisdom. You got a lot more to share. You may not have some of the strength as all the young bucks running around, but you have wisdom. You have knowledge. You have a degree of understanding and a depth of insight. And so David says here, Lord, I'm getting old. I'm gray-headed. But he's saying, Lord, please be with me. Keep strengthening me. Please don't forsake me. Stay with me, Lord, until the idea is until I complete my mission. You see, he's saying, he's, the idea here is, is the psalmist is saying, I have a mission. And what was his mission? Interesting. To declare your strength and your power to this current generation and to those who are up and coming in the next generation. That's a wonderful pattern there, that those of the older generation, whatever that is, are looking down at the next generation saying, you know, if the Lord tarries in this next generation, I, I don't want to neglect my responsibility in a missional way to teach and train and invest in the next generation. I want to share with them lessons that I've learned and truths about God to tell them about God's strength and God's power and what God can do and what he has taught me. And I like this. There's a sense of mission here in this aged man, this older person that's gray-headed. There's a sense of mission and responsibility. He actually sensed it was his responsibility. Until I do this, Lord, don't forsake me. Until I've completed my task... And what a wonderful thing. You know, I encourage you. You know, Moses' ministry didn't get started, though. He was 80. Right? He had a pretty good ministry, Moses did. Pretty famous guy in the Bible, right? I mean, God used him in some incredible ways. And the Bible tells us that Moses was 80 years old when he, in a sense, got up and running. And so don't let age be something that diminishes, you know, the particular things you do may be, you know, different than others, but you have a lot to give. Don't have a retirement mentality in the body of Christ. There is wisdom and instruction and guidance to be passed on, whether in discipling or teaching. The Bible says older women should be teaching younger women. Understandings and ways of the Lord. So here, I, I love this verse, verse 18. What a great encouragement and the value of the older saints and that missional mindset of always each one of us investing in the next generation. You know, whatever stage you're at, there's a generation below you declare the ways of God to them. Also, he says, verse 19, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? Lord, your righteousness, it's, it's high. It's above my grasp. Lord, you are so incredible. I, I can't even fully grasp it. It's so high. He says, who's like you? I just no one. Lord, you're that great. You have shown me as well, he says, verse 20, great and severe troubles. 
But you shall revive me again and bring me up from the depths of the earth and increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. Now, notice the maturity of this older saint at this point, this aged man. He's talking about all these great things God's done in his life, right? Upheld him from his youth and taken good care of him, taught him many things, delivered him, helped him. But now he just very, in a very raw and honest way, he says, and you know what, Lord, you've done some really great things. And then verse 20, he says, one of the great things you've done, you've let me see some great and severe troubles in my life. <laughs> Lord, you have. You've let me go through some real hard times, Lord. But I learned some things through that. I learned your faithfulness. I was humbled. Character was developed in my life. I experienced your comfort and your presence and your love. He says, Lord, you, you've shown me some hard things in my life. You've shown me some severe troubles, but Lord, you can let me see trouble and let me go low to the depths of the earth, but you can also revive me again. And you've brought me up out of the pit many times, Lord, he says. You've revived me and renewed me when I was, in a sense, at my lowest point. You've increased my greatness and you've comforted me on every side. So he says, verse 22, look how he concludes the psalm. Also, the idea is in light of this, with the lute, I will praise you. And your faithfulness, O God, to you I will sing with a harp, O holy one of Israel. My lips, he says, shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you and my soul, which you have redeemed. My tongue shall talk of your righteousness all day long. For they are confounded. Lord, they have no idea, those who don't know you. And they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. So, Lord, those who are, are, are confused and who are seeking to harm me just because I love you and I want to serve you, Lord, just, just deal with my enemies. But he says, Lord, in the meantime, help me to just keep celebrating you. Help me to just keep declaring your greatness. He says, praising you talking about your faithfulness, singing to you with instruments. My lips, he says, greatly rejoicing when, when I sing to you. Isn't that interesting? My lips greatly rejoicing when I sing to you. That almost gives me indication sometimes I can sing to God and I'm not really rejoicing. I'm just mouthing the words. And my mind is on, oh, God, this is going on in my life. I'm singing the words like rote routine, religion but I'm not really my heart celebrating. You know, I just read in my devotions this morning, Matthew chapter 15, and, and this morning I just came upon that passage where Jesus says, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then he says this, he says, and in vain they worship me. What? You can worship God in vain. God says there are times where we can worship him, but it be in vain? Yet yeah, is empty, worthless. Yeah, how? Because our heart's not in it, right? I mean, if you fall in love with somebody, and this is a, well, maybe I shouldn't give that, but I'm going to give that example anyway. It's, 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 it's clean. So you love somebody, and you, well, only when you're married, and you smooch them. And you can tell they're not smooching you back. And you're thinking, where's the love on the end of that? This is a mechanical kiss here. Now, this has never happened in my marriage. I'm just using an illustration. <laughs> but if this has ever happened to you in your life, or you sense, I just, I don't, you're going through the mechanics of it, but I don't, I don't sense the love on the other end of that. Well, look, I, I don't want to, in a sense, be blowing passion or smooches to the Lord or trying to kiss up to the Lord or singing songs to the Lord and my heart not be in it. God wants my heart. He wants my heart to be engaged. 
And sometimes we have to kind of keep our, our, our hearts checked in that manner. Lord, I, I want to greatly rejoice when I sing to you. My soul, why? He says, verse 23, my soul which you redeemed. Look, if you ever lose the wonder in worship, just stop and think about the fact that your soul has been redeemed again. And if that does not make you put a little passion behind the smooch, something's confused there. Because when you think about the reality that your soul is redeemed, that should always excite you to want to express worship to the Lord. Let's stand together.